It's an African-American minister and seminary professor named Joanne Terrell, who grew up in Chicago and had what can only be called a deep gash across her childhood. When she was five years old, she was witness to her own mother's murder by, uh, by, at the hand of a man who she was uh, seeing at the time. And in her book, Power in the Blood, she begins to remember the flashbacks of, of horror in her eyes with blood-soaked mattresses and bloody handprints on the walls. But she says that somewhere through that journey, when she found Christianity, she finally found a way to resolve the horror of that event. Uh, More specifically, it was the theology of the cross of Jesus that gave her a real dynamic change agent, not just to survive the event, but actually even to thrive in the midst of it. Okay, stop for a second. How do do stories like that strike you? (laughs) Like when someone tells you that something unthinkably awful and horrific happened in someone's life, and they go to you and they say that they resolved it. How does that land with you? (laughs) My guess is in a room like this, there's there's a variety of responses. Some of you might immediately be skeptical. Really? You you, you survived it? You're you're over it? I mean, surely you got to be using religion here to repress something very ugly in your own heart. I mean, painful realities don't just go away like that. I do think that we often talk very courageously to say that, but would we ever say to someone's face who watched their mother's murder that, no, you're really not over this? Others of you might actually um, be a little overly simplistic. You might say to yourself, yes, because Jesus is the answer. Okay, well, (laughs) but it really does seem equally impossible to sort of cover over, you know, what have to be years of internal conflict and pain that this woman suffered with little trite responses to help her get through ordeal. Still others of you might look at an event like this and say to yourself, well, okay, wait a minute. What does she mean that it was the theology of the cross that helped her? What do you mean by that? And as it turns out, I'm kind of hoping that your response is that third one. Because we've, we've come here now to the end of Luke's reasons for being able to assure his friend Theophilus, who we met at the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, that he can have certainty about this Jesus that he's heard about. But you can't deny that where we've landed in our passage this morning is not at all what you would have come to expect. I mean, I'm sorry, but you don't draw inspirational messages from someone where your young hero has been completely abandoned by all of his friends. He's keeping company with thieves, uh, foreign invaders, and even women, and who now is executed in one of the more grisly manners ever conceived by man. This is just not how this ends, (laughs) And so the word that I've chosen to kind of hang over these texts this morning is the word paradox. A paradox is something that seems like one thing, but it's actually another. There's all kinds of paradoxes that we use in life to sort of communicate some important truths. People will oftentimes say things like, you know, if I know one thing in life, it's that I really know nothing. Yeah, George Bernard Shaw is the one credited with saying, you know, it's a pity that youth would be wasted on the young. Or one of my favorites where Oscar Wilde's famous, you know, I can resist anything except for temptation. Paradoxes, they say something to us. But my premise this morning is there really is no paradox in literature that comes close to what Christianity is teaching at the cross of Christ. Because the way to live is to die. The only way to victory is through losing. 
If you lose everything for my sake, Jesus says, then you'll actually gain the whole world. And so my point this morning is is that only Christians have at their disposal the means to bringing about this most remarkable feature of the cross to bear on Jesus' followers. Because it looks at us and says that even in the midst of the ashes that are your life, something can rise up again, even when all is lost. Actually, especially when all is lost. And so I want to throw out three thoughts for us this morning to help unpack these few verses. Number one, you need to see that all roads lead here. Number two, that all stories resolve here. And then thirdly, that all excuses end here. So number one, all roads lead here. You know, once you spend this much time in the gospel of Luke as much as we have, it's easy to think that this rather inglorious end of Jesus of Nazareth was a big surprise. What? This wasn't the way it was supposed to go. But this is your first interpretive clue to understanding how important the cross is. Because Luke treats Jesus' death as if it's been something that has been expected from the very beginning. Everything has been leading up to the verse right before the ones we read in verse 33. And there they crucified him. It's all been going. Think about this. When Jesus was a boy, you know, the prophet Simeon had said that a sword would come and pierce Mary's heart. Later on in chapter 9, Jesus predicts that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Later in that same chapter, Jesus sets his sights resolutely toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows he's going there to die. He, He talks about in chapter 12 a fire that he has to be baptized with, the fire of the cross. He talks in chapter 17 that he first must suffer many things and be rejected before the judgment comes. In chapter 18, he comes again and comes clean on his mission when he says, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Even the passion story that we're in the middle of now opens in chapter 19 under a death threat on Jesus from the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people who were seeking to destroy him. In other words, the cross dominates Jesus' ministry and life. It is the event to which he looked and fixed his eyes upon. And it's at the heart of Luke's message, the culmination of his entire story. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want to read from my favorite commentator in the Gospel of Luke, a guy named uh, Michael Wilcock, who says this. He says, in the same way, let no reader imagine that he has begun to understand the Christ of the Gospel unless the cross has come to dominate his horizon also. Listen to this. Only when he has sought it and reached it and let it fill his vision as it filled the vision of the Lord and of his evangelist, can he say that he's even beginning to see what the Christian life is all about? In other words, it really doesn't matter where you find yourself on the, on the Oxford, Mississippi sliding scale of religious knowledge right now. If what you think about yourself before God is not dominated by this event, then you severely miss the point. You missed it all. And the reason why we got to drill down on this is because I think for much of evangelicalism today, the cross is sort of placed in the center of people's thinking 
mostly about the task of evangelism. We think to ourselves, well, we present the cross and the benefits of the cross to non-Christians. But of course, once they got it, understood it, then you kind of move on to the advanced stuff. But that really betrays Luke's argument here. You don't get past the cross in Christian thinking. This is not the ABCs of the Christian life. Rather, the cross is spoken of as the, as the center of the wheel of which everything in the Christian life extends, whether it's your justification, whether it's your adoption, whether it's your sanctification, even your glorification. All of it comes through the lens of the cross. This is the reason why the Christians chose this symbol as kind of like the symbol of Christianity. John R.W. Stott, in his book that you must read, The Cross of Christ, says this. He says, the fact that a cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused, in spite of ridicule, to discard it in favor of something less offensive can really only have one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. And it was out of loyalty to him that his followers clung so doggedly to this sign. Look, all roads lead here. For any person who's been asking with us this question this year, what could possibly have been so compelling about this Jesus that these original followers would have left all to follow him? Because the cross is the only real answer to that question. But remember, it's a paradox. It's not what you would expect. It is downright odd that Christians would have chose this as their symbol. So the question that becomes, what is the meaning of this sign? Which brings me to the second point. Not only do all roads lead here, but secondly, all stories resolve here. Again, this begs the question, what about the cross, this, this, this brutal form of ancient execution, how would that somehow become the central point of commendation for Christians? Well, remember, don't get distracted by the horrific sufferings that Jesus is going through, as awful as they were. But rather, we need to look at what the cross means. And interestingly enough, I think Luke has given us a way of looking at it, where I think he's going to end up telling us that the cross of Christ represents the resolution to the most fundamental problems of being human. The, the fundamental problems. And again, that's okay to sound overstated to you. But I simply want you to consider two signs that Luke decided to record in this passage of what happened while Jesus was being crucified that we can pair with two of the statements that come from the cross that unlock for us what I mean, that the cross is the only way to fundamentally resolve our issues. It's the darkness and it's the split veil. Those two figures, I think, have a lot to unpack for us. Let's dive into them. Number one, the darkness. <clears throat> Look, notice when this whole thing takes place. When Jesus is being crucified, Luke tells us that the thing happened at the sixth hour, which means that everything goes down right in the middle of midday. But here's the problem. Everybody that was there reported that it was as dark as night. What in the world could that possibly mean? Well, it's very interesting that had people been good students of their Bibles, they would have known what this was. Because throughout the Bible, you find it predicted that something like this is going to happen. Back in Amos chapter 8, there is a book of Amos in the Old Testament, one of the prophets. In chapter 8 verse 9, Amos says this, he says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Look, there's a couple things to notice about this little parallel passage. First of all, what day is Amos talking about? 
on that day? Well, he's referring to actually a very often spoken of event that was to come in the minds of the prophets. And it was coming when God would finally come and bring judgment on his wayward people. And they called it the day of the Lord. It's all over the place in the, in the prophets. They talk about it again and again. And we actually know what the day of the Lord was because the prophets lay out its case for its justification over and over again. For instance, in the Amos passage that I just read, if you go actually just a few verses before that, Amos says this. He says, hear this, you who trample the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. In other words, he's saying there's a day of the Lord that's coming to bring judgment on his people who were supposed to be the ones who were taking care of the helpless people around them. But now they're the ones that are oppressing them. And so judgment's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of reckoning. It is judgment. It's judgment for sins of omission. Things that should have been done but weren't that God's people were leveled among them. And so, so a Jewish person who knew their Bible and had listened even a little bit to what Jesus had been preaching in the previous few years, they would have known it. It's the day of the Lord. It's here. It's now. God has shown up to judge all of us. He is now at this moment calling all of our accounts. We now have to pay for our sins. They would have, should have thought. But instead, what do they hear from the cross? Because this is the counterpoint to the darkness that was fell across the land. Because Jesus' statement that he says back up in verse 34, what they hear him say is, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Look out, the most fundamental problem of our humanity is the problem of inward darkness. Am I wrong about this? The darkness comes to us in all kinds of ways, whether, whether it's a darkness of tragedy in life that we're oftentimes the victim of. Maybe it's the darkness of, of existence when you, when you just try to figure your life out on your own with God somehow on the periphery. Maybe it's the darkness that comes out of your own life when you, when you seem unable to let go of the hatred and the bitterness or maybe even the addictions that grip us. Darkness can sometimes also be logical. You know, the spinning arguments that you're trying to make in your head while you figure it all out. It can be emotional in straight up depression. It can even be volitional <laughs> with the choices that I make that seem to fall into a descending habit. The darkness can also be societal, where a society is sort of taken over by violence and oppression, but it's persistent. When I was in college, I had to read uh, the little book by Joseph Conrad called Hearts of Darkness. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was the book that was served as the inspiration uh, for uh, Apocalypse Now, not the feel-good movie of the summer. Don't, don't watch it. But Conrad's thesis was simply this idea that the reason why we don't engage in a kind of primitive evil that we do is just because of our circumstances. So that when Colonel Kurtz is placed inside this tribe of savages, he ends up becoming a savage himself. Because our true inward nature comes to the surface and we suddenly realize that anything that we used to do in condescending to other people, those people, is just done for at that moment. Why is there a universal sense of darkness in life? Well, the Christian story of life answers that human beings, even without realizing, experience darkness inside because they're waging a war. They're waging a war against an undefeatable enemy in God. We're not born neutral towards him. 
We don't stand on the outside of him being like, well, what are we going to do? Our ways are bent against having our way over and against his. So that all of my psychological, emotional, relational, or even societal pathologies ultimately sort of can be traced back to the Bible's statement about sin. But the good news is, the day of the Lord is coming. Or is it good news? <laughs> and you'll know when the day of the Lord is coming to judge offenses when it gets super dark in the middle of the day. And so of all of these, but, but this is what's crazy. Of all of the dramatic twists in Luke, this is one of the biggest ones. Because as he reports on the long-awaited day of the Lord, Luke includes Jesus saying to his executors, Father, forgive them. In other words, yes, God has decided to unleash this awful day, but not on those that deserve it. Because the day of the Lord is not going to get poured out on them, but it's going to get poured out on his own son, Jesus. The day of the Lord is being visited, yes, but on Jesus and not on his people. And so of all the days that needs that exist deeply within the heart of man, the need to know that somehow I can be forgiven, that's at the top of the list. I venture to say that this is at the heart of every professing Christian's greatest need this morning. To know, to really know that I'm forgiven. Can I know that? Because Jesus knows that at the very moment that he screams that request for forgiveness, he's securing forgiveness for his people as he does. Okay, so that's the darkness. That's the first image he brings out. The second thing Luke starts talking about is a torn veil. Because again, of all of these human needs to sort of be free from darkness, another human need is to be in the presence of her maker. Accepted, healed. You know, the main mischief of our sin is not just to make life miserable, but the effect of it is actually to cut us off and to cut us out from the only place where we can know true joy, our true purpose in life, which is in the presence of God. And so in the second half of verse 45, we're told that the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now look, you're okay if you ask the question, what in the world are they talking about? <laughs> what veil got torn? Well, in the Old Testament Jewish temple, they had in the back of the great hall of the temple a smallish cube-shaped room and, and that separated was separated from the larger hall by a giant curtain. On the other side of that little room was a small little golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And what happened was, is once a year, and only once a year, a high priest who had been through days of ritual sacrifice would go in back there to meet with God. And it was terrifying, because the closer you got to God, the more dangerous it was. But here's the crazy thing. Suddenly, as the life is slipping from Jesus' body, this big curtain rips from the top to the bottom. What in the world could that possibly mean? Well, I think it means at least two things. Number one, you see Jesus giving us an example of what it means when he looks over to the outcast next to him, the thief next to him, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the essence of who Jesus is. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The veil is torn so that God's people can have access into his presence. There's a sense in which the veil is torn so that we can get in, but that's not all. Lots of you are out there being like, yeah, 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 we know that less. But you may have missed something different. Because if you go back to the prophets in Ezekiel 47, you'll find that the, the prophet has shown a vision. And this vision is of him standing right next to the front door of the temple. 
And as he looks down over the threshold of the front door, water's flowing out of it. It goes out across the temple. It goes out through the east gate and into the sort of desert lands out. And everywhere where the water goes, it heals everything. (laughs) Trees start growing up in the desert. Even the, the waters of the Dead Sea go from salty to fresh as soon as these waters touch it. In other words, what came about is, was, is, is there was a healing that came from what happened. So look, it's not just that the veil tore so that we could have access into God's presence. The veil tore so that God could get out into the world and bring its healing. That's what the cross attains for us. Look, when Jesus took our sins upon himself, he resolves this problem of the fearful darkness inside of his people. And when he does, he lets him into his presence, what we were made to experience. But once there, he turns you into someone from whom a trickle comes. There's a trickle that comes out of you, a steady flow of healing for yourself and hopefully the people around you. And it all started when Jesus absorbed the judgment that was supposed to take on us. So it always reminds me, and I use this illustration all the time, of my favorite illustration. When I first understand what the cross was doing, and it was a preacher who was talking about what people would do in the Midwest when they would see a grass fire starting. If you were a farmer and you lived in a place where there was a lot of wind, like the Midwest, a fire starting even miles away could be something that threatened your existence. And so in order to respond to the flames, they would do something called a controlled burn. And what they would do is they would take and they would make small little fires that they could easily put out And they would start to burn all the way around until finally they had created an entire strip of charred land surrounding all of their treasured possessions. So that by the time the flames came sweeping across the plain, once it met the already scorched earth, they went out because it had already been burnt. Look, Jesus on the cross is carving out for his people Jesus is being scorched at that moment so that when we are in him, in union with him, when the fires of fear and of of alienation from him approach us, they go out because they meet a place that's already been judged, that's already suffered. So all roads lead here, but that's how all stories resolve here. And finally, all excuses end here. I love, I love the reaction of the people. There's two reactions that the people have, which will let you know whether or not you understood what the cross was about. On the one hand, they beat their chests. Remember a few weeks ago where we talked about what that ritual meant? That it was a way of sort of talking about an ancient form of execution where a large, heavy stone was placed upon your chest, crushing the life out of you? These people walked away beating their chest because they were repenting. They were saying, my sin is too heavy for me. And so you know you've understood the cross when you stop making excuses. When you start to humble yourself. When you stop acting like you got your life together. Because none of us do. None of us. There's other people, though, that Luke says, who stood at a distance and they watched these things. I love that. (laughs) Because from the very beginning, you found that the main activity of being a Christian is to watch the cross. Investigate it. The cross is not the, the, the sort of beginner stuff, and then you move on to discipleship. You never figure out the full end of the cross. We're always looking into those treasures. So here's the question. How is it that a young African-American woman in the slums of Chicago 
get over witnessing her mother's murder? You know, for that matter, how does a, a married couple put back together the pieces of a marriage that is in tatters without any semblance of unity? How does a young man quiet the fires of his own conscience when he sets his lust free for a period of time? How does, how does a young woman face her abuser and not be completely crushed in the attempt to do so? The Bible's answer is the cross. <laughs> because by anyone's estimation, are those not some of the worst things that someone could go through? So here's my question. Is the death of the Son of God at the hands of his own creatures, is that the worst possible thing that could happen in human history? Of course it is. But y'all, the greatest grand glory of the cross is that at the same time, the cross is the greatest thing that could have ever happened in human history. And this is our only hope. This is it. Only in the Christian view of life do you have the greatest of tragedies being able to be transformed into the greatest victories of life. Only Christians talk this way because only Christians can talk this way. Because we're the only ones with the theological resources for starting over, for for genuine healing, for real transformation. And it's all at the cross. Again, from Michael Wilcock, he says, The account which Luke gives us of the last hours of Jesus' earthly life brings a much-needed assurance. The most diabolical of all the schemes of Satan was not only countered at every point by a superior plan of God's devising, but it was actually woven into that plan and made to serve its ends. And if that was what God could do with the master plot of hell, listen to this then there can be no evil which he cannot in the end turn into blessing. How oh, did you hear that? <laughs> Man, the cross, the cross comes to us in our pain and it meets us there and doesn't deny the pain. The cross doesn't shout at you and say, get over it. The cross comes and looks at the evil in your life and so that you can say in the, from the world around you and in your own heart, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in that same moment that it meets us in our pain, it also shows us that we worship the kind of God who doesn't stand aloof from it, but enters our pain, takes our pain, wraps himself in our pain, and then resurrects it. And he resurrects it into something beautiful that we could never have attained if it hadn't happened in the first place. And only a Christian can look back and resolve his past in this way. To look back and say, That cancer diagnosis, that loss of that child, that boss who told me I was fired, that pain of scar in my childhood, that depression. I look back on it, I'm like, was that the worst thing that could happen to me? Or was it the best thing that happened to me? Yes! Only the cross does that. Only Jesus does that. Jesus doesn't make me feel guilty for my pain, nor does he deny the awful mess that it is, but he resolves it in himself. John Donne, in his uh, uh, holy sonnet number 11, English poet and Anglican priest, wrote the famous line, Death, thou shalt die. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? How can death die? Well, the answer is it's a paradox. (laughs) Just like the cross. So where is the death and the rot and the stink in your life right now? Where is it? Because it's only resolved in the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. 
And in the end, isn't that really the only compelling thing about him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you take the pain, the scars that are across our hearts even now that I, that I don't know and that none of these people know about me. And is there a way that you could draw us into that and know that you took it, you absorbed it, you neutralized it, so that now we look back and say, yes, it was horrible and no one ever wants to go through it again, but you made something beautiful out of it. Some of us can see that and bear witness to others that it's there. Others of us are still caught in the pain. So we pray this morning that you would go and meet them wherever they are. Perhaps, Father, it might be someone here who even for the very first time comes to see and comes to know and to think to themselves, I want that. Would you pay special attention by your Spirit even to them that they might come and embrace you, that they might race to you for their only hope of healing. Would you do that? Well, we ask it all in Jesus' name.